Hopefully you all received a copy of of Psalm 73. Um, I elected not to try to write a sermon on the James that um, that the passage already selected. I want to walk us through this passage today. I've been pondering perspective in the last several months. Eugene Peterson has written that of David, that David had a God-dominated imagination. That's stuck with me for years, and even in these these last months during this pandemic, I've thought a lot about um, a perspective. What's a God-dominated perspective? Even a few months ago when I was liturgist, I shared a little bit about some of the, the thinking I've been doing on that. Even in David's life, when you think about when, when Goliath stood in, in the valley taunting all of Israel's soldiers, and they were um, afraid. And yet young, young David comes along and fearlessly attacks. And it's not that Goliath was a different size for anyone. Everybody saw the same exact Goliath, whereas every single soldier from Israel saw Goliath in relation to themselves David saw Goliath in relationship to God and had nothing to fear. That's a God-dominated perspective to have. It was the same with the disciples in Matthew 8 as they were in the boat with Jesus, Jesus asleep, but the waves getting higher, the winds getting stronger, and they began to get scared and terrified to the point where they shook him to wake him up. And he said, why are you afraid? And calmed the sea. And they were stunned by that. But again, here they are in the boat with the one who created that, but they couldn't couldn't see that. They they could only really see the waves and the wind. And so I want to talk about this today, how to gain a God-dominated perspective. And I think we have this opportunity this morning to listen and learn from Asaph. This is his psalm, Psalm 73, that you have there. He's a worship leader of Israel, a vested interest in leading the people in worship well, an older, wiser believer who can, who can share from his own perspective what he has learned, how he has struggled. He begins the psalm with these words, Truly God is good to Israel. That's where he starts this psalm. But as we'll see, it took him... Um, on quite a journey to be able to proclaim that confidently. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We pray that you would open our eyes, that we might see you more clearly through your word. Father, may I preach for your glory and not my own. Get me out of the way so that we might hear what you have to teach us today. Holy Spirit, take my words and make them clear. Pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Again, I don't, I don't have points today. <clears throat> there are points to this, but I don't have. I really just want us to walk through this psalm together. So Asaph begins, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. <clears throat> Asaph's statement of God's goodness is is immediately followed by his own confession of struggle. 
He had nearly slipped. He had nearly stumbled. He, he was lacking faith. He was falling away. And what a gift he's giving us here, a glimpse into someone else's spiritual life where he's willing to be honest with us about his own struggles, his envy, his doubt, how he almost lost his faith <clears throat> and forgot who God was. Sorry. <clears throat> He's sharing here <clears throat> about what nearly happened to him so that we might be encouraged, that we might know how to hold on to this truth. Verses 3 through 4 sums up really the next 10 verses. He says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. What, what disorients Asaph but also attracts him is what he perceives to be the effortless ease of the wicked. Alongside their, their arrogant disdain for God. Look at the rest of this description, verses 5 through 12. They're, they're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. They, they proudly wear this so all, all can see. Verse 7 continues, their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts fill with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. There's no fear of repercussion. There's no fear of God here. <clears throat> they set their mouths against the heavens. <clears throat> oh, I'm so sorry. And their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Asaph is not only describing the wicked here and their behavior, but he's also confessing to what's increasingly attractive to him about it, about their prosperous and trouble-free life. We're witnesses here to Asaph's descent into doubt, a descent that's paved by his envy, his growing desire, not, not for God, but for what God can give him. For Asaph, as with us, oftentimes the first step of, of forgetting God, of, of stumbling, is being discontent with where God has us and doubting that what he has said to us is true. Asaph's envy comes quite naturally, for he is a spiritual descendant of envious doubters. We know this, that starting in the garden, Satan convinces Adam and Eve that paradise is somehow imperfect. That having everything except this one thing is evidence of God's withholding, of God not loving them. He creates doubt about God's love and provision so that they disobey. And so it continues. Cain envies what Abel has to the point of killing him. We see it with Jacob and Esau, with Joseph, where his brothers envy lead them to take extreme measures. The Israelites' discontent in the wilderness has them so twisted up that they actually envy the conditions they had as slaves 
so discontent they are with what God has provided to them. We see Saul's envy of David. We see David with access to all a king has. Envy what Uriah has to the point that he takes his wife and then his life. Envy disorients. Envy destroys. It separates us from Jesus ever wanting more. It will not allow us to be satisfied with what we have and leaves us unable to tolerate having something that we don't. We see this in our own lives today at, at the things that draw our eyes again and again away from God. It causes us to doubt him. I don't care if you're three or, or you're 93. This is true for each and every one of us. And it starts at a young age. I've watched children from a very young age, and I'm not going to name any names, but get equally valuable Christmas gifts of the same exact worth, but they're different, and immediately want what the other kid has because they don't have it themselves. We each experience envy of other people's stuff, other people's experiences, other people's jobs, other people's grades, other people's gifts and abilities, and so on. We're bombarded throughout the day with what other people have, what other people are doing, and we wonder, why don't I get to do that? Why don't I look like that? Why do good things always happen to them? Why don't they include me? It starts young and continues into adulthood. We look around and ask, well, why, why, did, why did he make varsity? Why is she first chair? What, what does he say? How did she get a better grade than me when I studied so much more? Why is it so much easier for him to make friends? Why did she get credit for that when I did as much work? Why don't they have any problems? Why are things so effortless for them? Why did everyone listen when he said it after I said the same exact thing? Why can't I have that personality? Why did she get that promotion instead of me? I wish we were more like him. Why can't our kids behave like that? Why can't we afford a house like that? Why weren't we invited to that party? And on and on it goes. Same song different verse, we grow increasingly discontented with what we do have and desire more and more what others have. And we wonder, as a result, does God really care? Because if, if he really cared, I, I, I would have all of that. And we grow increasingly miserable as we wither away. Envy feeds upon us even as it destroys us. There's a fable told of a, of a majestic eagle that could fly so high, but saw another eagle that could fly higher. And that bothered the eagle that couldn't fly quite as high so much that he sought out a hunter. And the hunter had arrows, and he said, Hunter, I spotted an eagle for you that you should take as a prize. He said, I, I see it, but my arrows cannot reach that high. I need feathers, fletchings on this arrow to reach that high. And so the eagle proceeded to pluck a feather. He said, well, I need more than that. He plucked another feather. The arrow couldn't quite reach. 
I'm going to need more air. I'm going to need more feathers in order to reach that high. So soon the eagle had plucked its feathers, and the arrow still could not reach. And once he had given his last feather um, and realized that he himself uh, could not fly any longer. Asaph envies the easy, carefree life of those he observes, and it almost destroys him. Wealth and ease are attractive, reaping the rewards without the righteousness. He values what they have over what he has. And ultimately, he has a difficult time reconciling what he sees with what he said in verse 1, that, that God is good to his people. His experience suddenly doesn't, doesn't match that. And this causes his crisis of faith, reaches his breaking point in verses 13, 15. In vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He's asking, is, is the Christian life really worth it? What do I have to show for it? Why bother with all this? Verse 14, for all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I'd said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. First, Envy steals joy, then it breeds discontent. But most dangerously of all, it separates us from God. It causes us to doubt him and to believe his goodness is not very good if I don't have what I want. And that's the way of envy. Our obedience becomes conditional because that, that prosperity gospel is alive and well in our hearts because we don't love God so much we love what God can give us. That's why it's important to not forget the second half of verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now that phrase, pure in heart, is familiar to us. We see it at different times in Scripture, and perhaps most in Matthew chapter 1, it's, it's the sixth beatitude. Jesus tells us, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Envy blinds us to what we do have, and soon all we can really see is what we don't. Envy cannot diminish God, but it can blind us to how we see him. We had a wonderful vacation a few summers ago we went out to Utah and Arizona to hit the national parks out there and, and it was, uh, Zion National Park we saw Bryce Canyon uh, the Grand Canyon just majestic it, just beautiful awe-inspiring creations of our loving creator but If I simply would have taken these two bottle caps, um, worth, worthless, effectively, maybe, maybe cost fractions of a cent to create, and I held them here, they effectively blotted out the Grand Canyon. Now, these are insignificant. I could chuck these into the Grand Canyon, and you would never see them again. I could literally take millions of these and still not fill the Grand Canyon with them. 
But here's the thing about idols. Here's the thing about envy. Proximity matters. Priority matters. I can be blinded to God's glorious provision, to glorious grace by envy, by how closely I hold things to my heart, by how much I love them. And as we see in Asaph's life, this further intensifies his crisis of faith. He simply cannot reconcile all this on his own. He continues in verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. When Asaph tried to understand it on his own, he simply could not. Trying to rationalize and understand on his own is an impossible task. We cannot gain perspective on our own. We can't gain this God-dominated perspective in our own strength, in our own wisdom, in our own experience. We will wear ourselves out and only grow more discouraged. So what is the answer? How do we counter doubt and envy? How do we gain perspective? Verse 17 tells us, until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. The only antidote to envy, the only antidote to doubt is worship. It's in worship that our perspective is changed, that we can become self-forgetting. The only way to understand all of this is in the sanctuary. We cannot understand um, from our limited perspective. We must come into the sanctuary, into the presence of God, that we might gain his perspective. The opposite of envy is worship. To die to ourselves, to lose our perspective, and to see from his. To see ourselves rightly and what we have in him but also, as Asaph notes, to see the ultimate end of the wicked and the true worth of those things that he was envying. Our circumstances in the sanctuary, the circumstance of the wicked only makes sense through this perspective of worship, that only the one true God can bring. Our, our, Our default is to think that we need more, we deserve more, that if we have more, we'll be better, but we we simply, we simply don't. Coming to the sanctuary reminds us that what we do deserve, it reminds us of what we do deserve and what we do have. It's the great recalibration that our hearts need regularly. To truly that getting anything more than the destruction that we deserve is God's grace. It's in worship that we get our eyes back. With purifying of the heart comes clarity of vision. We see more clearly. We see more completely. We trust his promises. And we're convicted and recognize that we were envying bottle caps when the creator of the universe was right there all the time. But again, we must come into the sanctuary regularly. It's what our hearts need to gain this perspective. I drive a, a 2001 Honda CRV, and it's... It's been a great vehicle for me, but it's, it's 20 years old now, and one of its flaws is that it comes out of alignment pretty easily. Every bump, every pothole knocks it a bit more out of alignment, causes the wheels to unbalance and then wear unevenly so that I have to get 
new tires more often than I want to. So it's my, my job to know this about my car. It's my job to try to avoid those potholes and those bumps, and then to get it into the shop with some regularity to have it realigned. And that's what we see going on here. Our hearts need to be realigned and recalibrated regularly. It doesn't take much to knock us out of alignment. If we're on every little bump of discontentment, every pothole of envy wears us down. Is he really who he says he is? Can I really trust him if I don't have what other people have? It's why we need to worship. It's why we need to come into the sanctuary together, that we might remind one another of his promises, to understand that we must regularly be encountering the Lord together through prayer, through reading his word, through meeting with brothers and sisters to study the word, to have worship and fellowship together, fixing our eyes on him. That's why throughout this pandemic, we've prioritized this gathering of the saints together. It's so essential for our hearts. So what does Asaph learn in the sanctuary? Verses 18 through 20. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. The first thing that he sees in the sanctuary is the true end of the wicked. His, his upside-down perspective is, is turned right-side up in the sanctuary. His, his limited point of view is enlarged. You and I have a finite number of data points. We've got what our eyes and ears can see. We've got our limited experiences on this earth. It's also all, all Asaph had in order to make the judgments that he did on his own. But God, God has infinite data sets. He, he sees every single data point. It's in worship in the sanctuary that we are reoriented to see as he sees, to trust what he has said. Justice is... Whereas Asaph had nearly slipped and stumbled, we see that in God's judgment, the wicked actually do slip and fall and are destroyed and quickly forgotten like a dream when one awakes. In contrast, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever, forever those who he has called his own. It's in meeting with the Lord and being in his presence that our experiences actually begin to make sense. And we realize that the things that we've been envying actually have no value when compared to the surpassing greatness of our God. Please recognize here that Asaph's situation hasn't changed. He still has what he has. He still lacks what he lacks. What has changed is his perception of the situation. His perspective has shifted. Goliath is still nine feet tall. The winds and the waves are rocking the boat. But his perspective of those things have changed. 
And sometimes we ask, when, when, is this, when, when does this come true? When, when, is, when is this true? And I'm telling you, it's true right now. It's, it's an even deeper, even truer truth in eternity, but it is true right now. We've always had the best thing. We've always had God's love, our sonship, our inheritance. We've just not always known it or believed it or trusted it, remembered it rightly, valued it correctly. It's coming again and again into the sanctuary that we begin to value it correctly, that we recognize the true way of glory that is ours and how it compares to the insubstantial fading worth of what the evil enjoy. Verse 17 really serves as the hinge of this psalm. It's, it's the turning point for a man in crisis. By coming into the sanctuary, he's, he's beginning to recognize that he's always had the very best thing, the only thing of true surpassing worth. But beyond that, in the sanctuary, Asaph received even more. He also sees his sin and God's lavish grace. Prior to coming into the sanctuary, Asaph is seeing himself as, as pretty good. And we saw that earlier, I've kept my heart clean. He's not even been seeing his own sin and what he ultimately deserves. But as he comes into the sanctuary, as we come into that sanctuary, it's when we encounter Jesus that we see our true hearts, we see our sin, and we begin to understand what our end would be without him. The rest of the passage illustrates this. Let's look at this together. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. Those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your good works. Again, proximity matters. For me, it is good to be near God. What are we holding closer to our hearts than God. In, in worship in the sanctuary, Asaph sees first his own sin and then he sees God's grace. With a heart consumed by envy, Asaph was blind to his own sin. But now he sees. He has his eyes back. In the sanctuary, his perspective has been ex exponentially widened. Supreme majesty of God and in turn sees his own sin. How he was brutish, how he was ignorant, how he was beast like. He's an image bearer, acting like one without the image, acting like a beast, senseless, selfish, blind. But again, that's not the whole picture because it's not the whole gospel. 
He, he, sees our, he sees his sin, but he also sees his Savior. He sees his God. He sees very clearly God's amazing grace. The word in verse 23, nevertheless, is a, is a wonderful encapsulation of the whole gospel. Nevertheless, in spite of our sin, in spite of our senselessness, in spite of our beast-like embittered behavior, in spite of our doubt and envy and discontent, he's continually with us. He takes hold of the hand of his children and he simply does not let go. It's the gospel of nevertheless. He leads us, he guides us, and he'll glorify us. Our flesh and our heart will fail, but he does not. God is not scared of your doubt. He's not surprised by your doubt, just as he wasn't with Asaph. He is much bigger than your doubt. He is moved by nothing but his own love, his own grace, his own mercy that is new every morning. And this new perspective should give us confidence to boldly confess our doubt and struggles to the Lord and to others. It was God and God alone who kept Asaph from falling, who did not allow his foot to stumble, who was holding on to him even before he came into the sanctuary. He held firm to Asaph, and Asaph is telling each one of us today that God's holding on to you. We tend to live our lives as if making it to the end is dependent on our ability to hold on to God, but it doesn't. It's entirely dependent upon him holding on to us. And he simply doesn't let go. Nevertheless, is truly a glorious word, the entirety of the gospel summed up. Nothing in us merits forgiveness. Nevertheless, he forgives. He's a covenant-keeping God who let go of his perfect son's hand in order that he might always hold on to our hand. It's in worship that we are reminded of this, that we're actually able to doubt our doubt and love the Father for who he is and not what we can get from him. Every week, Dennis pronounces a benediction at the end of the service, similar to what churches around the world. Familiar benedictions to us that's given from the Lord to Moses who shares it to Aaron in number six. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That is the blessing given to you and to me and every one of God's people. And it's a beautiful blessing. But it's important to note this. A professor of mine in seminary noted that um, while Aaron's blessing is for all God's people, if you actually take that blessing and reverse it to a curse, this is what was placed on Jesus Christ for our sake. The Lord curse you and abandon you. The Lord turn his face from you and remove all his grace and favor from you. The Lord abandon you with his presence and take from you all peace. 
At heart, behind our envy is the question, is God good? Can we trust him? Is he who he says he is? Will he do what he has promised? The answer is always yes in Jesus Christ. Even when we struggle to remember the answer, it was for our sakes that Christ bore the penalty. He carried the curse all the way to the cross so that the blessing, uh, this benediction, this good word could be ours for all time. Oftentimes we treat the gospel as a vaccine when it's also a daily vitamin. While that gospel of grace saves and secures for all time, we also still need our daily dosage to nourish our souls each day. To speak this gospel to ourselves, to, to worship, to come into the sanctuary regularly, we need to be willing to share our stories honestly with one another, as Asaph has done here, and remind others in those times when they've forgotten that they might in turn remind us when we're having trouble remembering as well. So that's the good news, and I close with this. Jesus Christ is the only person who can literally say, I went through hell for you. Many others have said it. A good number of country songs have probably referenced it. Talking about the hell I went through for you. But only Jesus actually did it. He went through hell for you, through horrible suffering at horrible cost, through suffering and separation to becoming a curse for us. And if he did not let go of you in the Garden of Gethsemane, if he did not let go of you on the cross, if he did not let go of you as he descended into hell, he will not let go of you now. He will not ever let go of you. That's the correction that our perspective needs. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the neverthelesses of our lives, that you hold on to us and you guide us, even when we are brutish, envious beasts. Give us courage and strength to come regularly into your sanctuary that we might See through your eyes that we might have our perspective grow more eternal and less earthly. That we might always realize your goodness to us. That we may know with certainty that we have what is best in you. And nothing else compares. So Father, help us to help one another remember this. When our hearts grow faint and we've forgotten it. Our flesh our hearts will fail, but you are the strength of our hearts. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.